This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I spoke with her on June 21, 2007, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station WKNO in Memphis, Tennessee. This interview is included in our show, Reviving Sister Amy. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. I know. And, and, you know. Don't even get me started on 24, okay? This will be I know. Did you want, Did you stay with it last season? I'm so mad at them. I can't even stand it. The last, okay, the last show of the season, I was in South Africa, Krista. I didn't even care to watch it because after my sister told me, I was like, I'm done with you, Kiefer. You have ruined it for me. I would have run over a pack of 100 men to get you, but now I'm just sick of you, okay? (laughs) I know. It was really disappointing. Yeah, it was quite disappointing. So I wish I was seeing you in person, but we have to to work on that, okay? Yeah, yeah, And the fact that you had to catch me in Memphis, I was like, Oh, I didn't know where you were. That's where you are? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Memphis, yeah. I'm teaching here this week, so it's just kind of been very strange. Uh (laughs) I've been running around so much this summer. All right. Uh, you know what I didn't ask you? Go ahead. Okay. You, you start first. Well, no, you start. Go. Well, now, you know, I when she, when she Colleen told me about what the show's doing, you know, I didn't ask you one very crucial question, <laughs> which was, who else is on the show? Because the, and the only reason why I ask this is because I'm always trying to figure out when people talk about Amy, who's going to talk about what? Okay. So that's Uh-oh. that's the interesting question for me. And, and you know, you tell me. Well, the, you know, this is quite a different process than than the PBS yeah. show you were on. And I'm, I'm interviewing you and Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Okay. Two women who are, you know, in, 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 in Amy Simple McPherson's lineage <laughs> in some sense. Yeah, and, in and some what, sense, yes. And what I want to talk about is as much, you know, not not just kind of who she was. I don't, I don't really want this to be biographical in that sense. I gotcha. But... Yeah. Um, you know why is why is there this interest in her? Why is she interesting to you? What does she tell us about the nature of Pentecostalism, and how does her legacy yeah. matter to Pentecostal women today, or how does it cause you to reflect on what happens, what's happening with Pentecostal women today in your tradition? Yeah. So that's yeah. so. Oh no, I can talk about that. That's okay, really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure you can. So I mean, what I I I really I, I was a little bit. It, the more I got into this, I was I was confused about how I wanted to go with it. I, I actually think we'll talk through her life, but but I yeah. you know, as we start, I, but I or you know, kind of aspects of who she was. But I mm-hmm. really want you to reflect all the way through, or feel free to reflect all the way through. You know why that's interesting to you now? What it says? Yeah, no. Does that make yeah. sense? What it says to yeah, you about totally makes sense about this me. tradition I, of Pentecostalism? And yeah. for you, I mean, the Church of God in Christ, like. Like Amy Semple McPherson had had kind of a roots in um, holiness as well as Pentecostal theology and um, yeah. No, I think yeah. You know, now I I actually I like what you're doing because I think this is so much different than just talking about the the bells and whistles of her story. If you yeah. know what I mean, hey, because the problem becomes for everybody. It's like you know, flamboyant preacher builds a church, right. you know, goes missing. Maybe she cheated on her husband. Maybe she didn't. You know, goes back to her thing. I mean, it's it's a nice little trope, but there's just so much more there about gender and religion, you know, more broadly, and especially in the American context and and how we even deal with it now. So yeah, I think it, there's much more to this than just a history story. If you yeah. Know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. And. Right. And I mean, the scandal, the little piece you just mentioned, the 
disappearance and you know what her her mysterious disappearance and reappearance and um that's not all she did you know that's yeah, no, that's kind of the all. sexiest part of the story to tell and it and it yeah. always it always is told but um i, I do I, I also think well let's just start talking and we'll We'll get to this. Yeah, and then I, and you know what? And if you want me to, you know, like I said, if you if there's a, glo- a particular gloss you want to hear, you know, just make me backtrack since we're doing this really mm-hmm. very comfortably. I mean, it's it's easy for me, really, because okay. I, I I probably think about her in a lot different, and I think some important ways, not because I'm important, but because it just makes me think. And and I know the denominational backstory, so I'll say a little bit about right, that. and see, but in a nice way. Well, that's what I want. I want you to talk yeah. about how you think about her and why. Yeah. Why it's even interesting for you to be talking about her and um i was i'm curious when you did the pbs interview did was that a long interview yeah you know actually it was much longer than the clips that you saw right i mean that's always on true TV. but i wondered yeah. if it was pretty lengthy yeah, uh-huh. it was lengthy because, the, you know, the, I think the best part, unfortunately, got cut off where they asked me to comment on the end of her life. And, you know, basically the, the producer, Linda Garman, we sort of took the lens of this woman lost the love of her life. Uh-huh. And everything since then was sort of about, you know, two things. I think I'm supposed to be serving God, but, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I think it's really I'm serving Robert Sample. Okay. And and this sort of quest to, you know, not be alone, but she's surrounded by all these people, but she's still alone. Right, right. And, 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 and what does that say for, you know, all the women who decide to take this route? And, you know, you you find yourself, you know, your, your kids don't, you know, some of your kids don't like you very much, and that's Roberta. And, um, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you haven't fallen out with your mother. Everybody everybody loves you, but you just don't feel loved. Hmm. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll either use that or circle back to that. Let's. I mean, let's talk about um, the beginning. Let's just let's just kind of start at the beginning and and walk sure. through some of the high points. She, her mother was uh, worked for the Salvation Army, which which was a holiness. Uh, it was a tradition of the holiness movement, and and Amy Semple McPherson. Um, T- talks about a turning point where she went to a revival and she she would say that when she walked into that revival she felt cold and far from God and she was born again and I wonder um, when you imagine that revival and from what you know about it and from what you understand of a Pentecostal experience you know how would you describe what happened to her there? Well I think she's really struck I mean if you think about the Salvation Army tradition was sort of you know it's still vibrant people stand on street corners and preach but I think the thing about anybody walking into a Pentecostal service for the first time it's all this movement with your body mm. and you're taught in a certain way to control your body I mean think about this this is just you know right at the turn of the century we're still sort of kind of Victorian worldview sort of way and right. to see people sort of you know women and men letting their bodies loose in worship and all this tongue speaking and people touching each other and all this. I mean, it's got to put you in a different kind of a space. You know, it's this really liminal space in a moment where you think, I, I'm touching something, but there's something different going on here. And then you add on the charismatic preacher, and then, you know, the rest is sort of history in a certain kind of way. <laughs> right, right. And the charismatic preacher was Robert Semple, a young Irishman, yeah. who she, in fact, fell in love with and married. And to me, knowing something about early Pentecostal history, I mean, it's an incre- I mean, it's a tragedy anyway, but I'm thinking what they went to China as missionaries. And I mean, I haven't actually found anything about this, but I know a lot of those early Pentecostals 
when they spoke in tongues, believed that they were speaking in languages, that, right, that yeah. they were speaking Chinese or, or, or Hindi, and that they would land in those places. And Robert Semple and Amy went to China and that they would be speaking Chinese. Do you know if that was also something they um, expected? I'm I'm not sure if that was the case specifically with them, but you know the technical term for it are, has called xenoglossolalia. Mm-hmm. You were supposed to have a language, and this was sort of the um, founder of Pentecostal theology, Charles Parham's idea. You know, this baptism was about the end times, and you know we've got to go out and reach the world. And when you get this baptism, it's not just for so you can say Sheila bought a Hyundai. You know, it's for you need to go and speak somebody's language. Right. Right. And you're going to tell them about the message of Jesus and the gospel and everybody's going to get saved. Well, you've got all these Pentecostals running off hither and yon. And, you know, some of them really believe that, you know, I can speak this language. And people said, I speak crew or I speak Chinese, Mm -hmm. I speak Japanese. And then they get there and don't speak anything. And not only do they not speak anything, they don't know how to communicate with anybody there. You hope that you find an English speaker. But I just, you know, for Amy's case, I can't imagine you've just gotten married. You're on the boat. You cross the Pacific. You get to this strange country. And then, you know, there's nobody that you know. And there's all these practices that you don't ha- you have no familiarity with mm-hmm. from Canada. So, yeah, I would imagine it had to be very jarring for her. And I think part of this goes to her frail state later. I mean, you know, we don't talk much about what happens, but essentially she has no money. She has her first child, Roberta, there. Right, and he, he, her husband, contracts malaria within weeks and dies. Right. Yeah. So and, and this is it's, it's awful. It's it's awful. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. you imagine you get married, you're, you're about to have your first baby and your husband's dead. Mm-hmm. And then you're with all these people you don't know. And you'd you gone know, there. Nice I mean, you. they'd gone there out of this with this incredible dream, this missionary dream and this great yeah. spirit to do what the work that they felt was really important. Um, I can't mm-hmm. imagine how devastating that must have been. Yeah. And and you're young. I mean, you know, she's mm-hmm. not she's not that old. She's early. I think early 20s. And then you've got to, you know, get in touch with your mother and try to raise the money to get back home on a boat. Mm-hmm. How awful is that? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think we really sort of realize now, you know, as a young woman, how daunting that must have been. I mean, all sorts of things could have happened to her. But, I mean, she shows a lot of pluck from the very beginning, mm-hmm. really. And I also could imagine that this story could could have continued with another person saying, well, I don't believe in all of this anymore. Right. Surely God didn't call me to witness the death of my husband in a foreign country and become impoverished. But she went back and started working with the Salvation Army and within a very short time seems to have felt called to ministry in a huge way. Yeah, exactly. And and, and in terms of that, you know, meaning husband number two. Yes. And um, this is always very interesting to me because I think in, in part... Um, poor uh, McPherson did not know what he was getting into <laughs> in a certain sort of way. I mean, it was it's a little pragmatic. I mean, you know, I, I have a baby, I'm unmarried, and I need another husband, and here's this man, you know, paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and you think about it. I mean, if you're on a street corner, stand up in a nice little outfit every day, sing your tambourine, and somebody says, I want to walk you home, you start to think, well, you know, maybe it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe husband number two, maybe I can do this, you know. But right. it doesn't quite turn out that way. And, I mean, she really within, I'm trying to look at the, uh, you know, the timeline. I mean, within those couple of years, she is preaching. She's publishing The Bridal Call. Have you ever read that? 
Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. It's What's really great. it like? But back, back up, Krista, for a minute. Okay. So, so I get you with chronology here. Okay. Don't miss. There's there's a big there's a big piece that you want to you want to get here. Okay. Because from the time when she gets married to uh, Harold McPherson, from the time she gets married to him until the till the bridal call starts up a little bit later, but then she has this whole big problem. And you don't. I, I want to get to the problem about being married because this is going to be something that carries through throughout this this hour. Okay. In a, in the in the sense of this, these women can never stick with their husbands. And I. Th- <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, these women? Well, these Pentecostal. I mean, it's just—it's the most. I mean, you got to get rid of the man. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you. I mean, whether it's Amy or somebody else, men get in the way. <laughs> men get in the way, and I—I I you know, I hate to say it. I'm, I'm setting you up for the kill later on, but I just don't want you to miss a moment because the, the, <laughs> the real problem becomes: is what do you do with? I mean, this is why I'm interested in her. It's like mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. am I, I? You know, I wrestle with: should I be with somebody? Should I not be with somebody? I mean, it's very contemporary issue Mm -hmm. but the way it plays out for them is that they end up getting rid of these men and she gets rid of Harold. Right. <laughs> well, he, he sticks around for a little while, doesn't he? And then yeah, yeah, he up. sticks around for a little while. But it's just it, it's just funny to me that it, it's this part of the story that everybody misses. Mm-hmm. That you know, these women have husbands for a little while, and then the husbands conveniently die, or <laughs> they conveniently get divorced, and then you know, and now I'm free to minister for Jesus, you know, because well, Jesus is the ultimate uh, husband. All right, and I mean, but let's talk about <laughs> the, let's let's look at that theologically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our culture, the words Pentecostal and fundamentalist and evangelical mm-hmm. are often used interchangeably, whereas these are very different traditions. And, for example, um, a Pentecostal Amy Semple McPherson could say um, that her calling to be a minister would trump whatever obligation she had as a wife, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Right? I mean, she would she would be very careful about how to word it, but yes, she would think that on the inside. And it does. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when when you get called and, you know, there's all this thing in Joel chapter 2, you know, the spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh, your sons and your daughters. And so this is what Pentecostal women look at. Your it's sons like, and well, your daughters, daughters will prophesy, yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm going to go prophesy and you can't stop me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very much in the back of their minds, but you still have the sort of conventional, you know, Adam and Eve, everybody gets married. This is this is part of God's plan for everyone. But for Pentecostals, I think, which is different than fundamentalists, is that God's still speaking. Mm-hmm. And 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 that the fact that God is still speaking and still calling people and put that in quotation marks makes a difference, especially for Pentecostal women when they go with somebody like Amy, who goes off to do all of this, you know, missionizing and traveling without the husband. So so you tell the story of, you know, how how her ministry then develops. Okay. Part of part of what happens after Amy gets married to Harold is that she tries to be a house a housewife for a little while. She tries and it sort of works in a way because she has her second son Rolf, but she continues to be sick. There's sickness all the time. And I think one of the big Pentecostal tropes is um, if you don't do the calling that God has you to do, you get very ill. Mm-hmm. And Amy mm-hmm. suffered from lots of ailments and she had a hysterectomy. She had several other kinds of female problems. And then finally, you know, she's basically close to death and she hears this voice, you know, are you going to go? Will you go? Mm-hmm. And she says, yes. And she picks up, she, she takes off and she tells Harold, yeah, I tried it your way. Now will you try it mine? 
and she takes off and starts, you know, preaching around um, sort of the sort of New England area and then further down south, down into Florida and some other places. And he comes to join her. He tries to sort of live this life. I mean, this is a nice guy. He's a business person. He doesn't know uh, I think what that it's like to have been, to pitch a tent. Right. And it must have been pretty remarkable for a man. This is the early, early 20th century. I, I mean, yeah. it must have felt like a huge sacrifice to him and his oh, friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. he did he did the sort of, you know, what all men want to do, I want to provide the home. You know, I, I, I'm doing all these things nice for her. She's a nice house. She's got nice furniture. She's got nice dishes. What more mm-hmm. can she want? Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't really want to be at home. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to be at home. So did she was it in this period when she started? I mean, I think she started publishing The Bridal Call yes. while she was. And tell me about that. You said you've you've read yeah, it. Yeah, The Bridal. Yeah, The Bridal Call is really great because she sorts it. I call it the sort of if you think about Oprah's magazine. Oh, now. Yes. What's always interesting is that she sort of has herself on the cover a lot, too, huh. in various guises. So she might be dressed up as a shepherdess or or something like that on the front of some of the front, some of the bridal calls that you'll see. But it's about, you know, all early Pentecostals during this time period are sort of putting out their own publications. I think this is something that people really miss, but as a woman putting out her own publication, you know, on the road, think about this. She becomes a preacher and a publisher and then a broadcaster. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is speaks to really her entrepreneurial sense. It's just Mm -hmm. like, it's not enough for me to go on the road. I need to have a broadside to sell. Let me make the bridal call. She's not thinking about it as being sales. It's ministry. But it also puts some money in the coffers so that you can continue this work of the ministry. You don't get that much money taking a collection every night in a tent, you know? Somebody's got to pay for this stuff. Right. And what is that, what is it like, what, what she published? Well, it's it's a lot about what um, you know the end times. I mean, Amy is really interesting in in a sense because there's some dispensationalist thought in her in her thinking. In other words, she talks a lot about um, what kind of dispensation we're in, and for lots of Pentecostals, this is the last dispensation before Jesus comes. So you have a lot about Jesus coming, or there's um, some things about the revival meetings that she was having, and mm-hmm. and Amy's interesting because she's holding in, in a lot of places she's trying to hold interracial meetings, and in the South, you know during this time it's Jim Crow so you know to even make a mention of that or it also would have things like you know here's where I'm going to be next you know here's where we're hoping to be or here's what life is like on the road for me and the kids and and what we're what we're doing now so there's an element of of personal it's a little bit like a personal reflection in it um yeah and I you know and so this you know the interracial piece that you know that is a theme that absolutely runs throughout her ministry whatever else you want to see in it Mm-hmm. Um, she really seemed to have little interest in race or creed um, or social class. Um, her yeah. gatherings were remarkably ecumenical, uh, and and but what's in- interesting to me is that 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 interracial, you know that that mix and diversity and pluralism in the mix of people there um, was also what was astonishing about the Azusa Street Revival, about the very earliest days of the Pentecostal movement. However, you know that, that very quickly within the Pentecostal movement in general, um, that was not maintained right yeah, everywhere yeah, in many places. Yeah. I mean, blacks and whites and Latinos who'd worshipped together on Azusa Street worshipped apart. But Amy Simple McPherson is this figure who seems to carry that mind forward in time quite yeah, boldly. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, she does in the sense, and I think it's because of her own sense of feeling, you know, like one of the 
poor huddled masses at mm-hmm. times. I mean, it's it's really, you know, even though she has part of a cushy life when she's living with Harold, I think the life on the road and seeing the poverty and things like this, and it's also a strain that comes out of the, very much from the Salvation Army and the holiness movement, right. the sense in which all people should be together. And that you know, holiness we, were, they were yeah. abolitionists um, mm-hmm, in the exactly. early days. Right. Exactly. So I think for her, it was more about, you know, what do I think, what do I think heaven's going to look like? What you don't see a lot of, and I think what it, what's always puzzling and troubling about Amy at the same time is that she could play allegiances across the board. I mean, you do have to remember that this is, this is someone who, on the one hand, has interracial meanings, but on the other hand, you know, has a couple of incidences where the, where the Ku Klux Klan gives her money. Mm-hmm. And and this is one of the you know one of the hard parts of the story. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know it's it works for both sides of the strikes. I think on on one level, I think she's very much sincere about the um, the interracial um, context of her revivals, and later on at Angela's Temple. On the other hand, she is very pragmatist in a sense, and knows that if I need some support, I'm going to have to get it from somewhere. Okay. You mentioned the Angelus Temple, which um, could seat 5,000 people, which sounds incredible to me. I mean, it would be a big church by today's standards. Mm -hmm. She raised that money just (laughs) evangelizing in these tent revivals, (laughs) I think. Um, Well, well, yeah, part of it was that. Part of it was also, you know, she had some really clever ways of doing it. You could buy a chair in Angelus Temple and, and put your name on it. So she's broadsiding people and... It's it's quite amazing actually because she has a real machine about figuring out how to how to raise the money for all this. So it's it's partially the revivals, it's partially the the money that the offerings that come in for the temple. It's partially her, you know, concocting the chair campaign or the window campaign and all these other things that go along with it that help people feel like they're building a part of the building themselves. So, you know, it gets it gets everybody in a sense of that. But I think, you know, the even greater thing is that she has a vision for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and that's the big right. thing. I mean, you think about Los Angeles and you've got some very well-established churches during this time period. And to think, I'm going to put, you know, a, a temple which is kind of on the outskirts of everything in a sense. And and I'm doing this and I'm a woman. Right. Pretty, right. you know, it's, it's kind it's, of an it's itinerant preacher when she even has yeah. the idea and is raising money for it. Um, and I mean, it's not just that it, that there were five thousand people there once a week on Sunday either. I've seen that it was filled to capacity sometimes three times a day, seven All days a the week. Time. Yeah, and and what was great was that she knew how to put on a show for you. Right. So I mean, why wouldn't you line up to go see the illustrated sermon? Or to see her preach, or to see this fabulous choir, or the many guests who would come through to to see it. I mean, it was the, it was the greatest show sitting right there in Los Angeles that you could you know line up for. Even better than the movies, and they're still silent. <laughs> right, right. So I think that it's easy. I think it was easy for people in her time. I, I've read something that Dorothy Day wrote about her, which she, which mm-hmm. was titled "Our Lady of the Loudspeaker." Um, I think it was easy then and is easy now to just say she was a show show person. She was she was a, a movie star. Um, she had charisma and a charisma mm-hmm. in the way we think of it now. Um, and yeah. that that's that's the that's really essentially the way to explain this woman. I mean, is that the way how important is, is that? How importantly does that figure in how you explain this woman? I think it's important, but I think there's there's something deeper, and and it's almost dangerous to say in the same word as Pentecostal, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. 
there's something sexy about her. Mm-hmm. And it's this, it's, it's, and it's beautiful. She was beautiful. And beautiful. Yes. And I mean, the thing about her Photogenic. is, is that pedi- yeah, Pentecostalism is about embodiment. What do hmm. you embody? Hmm. Worship is in your body. And so the fact that she could, you know, sort of act out all of these things, she looked like she could be, you know, very much a femme fatale or somebody's mother at the same time. I mean, I think seeing her evokes, you know, especially in her, her, I call it the heavier phase, pre-1926. In her heavier phase, she looks like, you know, a woman who can stand her ground, but she still looks very attractive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that drew people in, but for her... It's I know I've got to get them in, but when I get them in, I'm going to give them the message. Mm. And that's what becomes more important for her. I mean, I think she realizes that she's got to marry sort of this Pentecostal embodiment with a strong sort of, you know, message of here. Here's this message of the gospel. Here's this Pentecostal experience. Here's how I can work out in your life and and change things. And so for that, I think she's totally holistic in in a certain Mm. way. I mean, I think it's just it may it's good to see her as, you know, it's easy to see her as an entertainer, but she's much more than that. Right. And what something I've noticed is then that in articles, that emphasize her um, as this as this entertainer. Um, they often don't mention or kind of downplay the work she did during the yeah. depression, feeding the hungry. I mean, feeding 1.5 million people. Um, Absolutely. And the commissary was, you know, you've got this commissary where people were not turned away. She has food there. You, you know, she's feeding people at least once or twice a day. You, she's got workers in the commissary. She's actually passing out food there. I mean, all of this sort of gets missed in the and and the you know sort of the more salacious aspects or maybe mm-hmm. more sensational aspects of her story. And I think what she does is this great service. It's it's this other piece of Pentecostalism. It's the social justice piece, right? That gets missed, uh-huh. you know, because people just look at oh, they're lifting their hands and they're shouting and they're speaking in that little funny language. But it's it's much more. For her, it's like I'm not going to just give you this message I'm going to show you how I love you so because I'm going to feed you and I'm going to help you get out of things and, and even even before the depression she's she's working with prostitutes and women who are abused I mean there's something that's there in her that's much stronger than this just I'm going to feed people so I can tell them about the gospel is that this is a real need I want to see people get better mm-hmm. I want to see them helped and I mean that is very striking to me too that that was such an aspect of that 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 ministry I see and she's in Los Angeles where the Azusa Street revival mm-hmm. happened again she doesn't turn anyone away I think it was the actor Anthony Quinn who was Mexican American who said she kept mm-hmm. the Mexican community alive and yeah um, and and what did she do she expanded the temple to include a laundry a day nursery an employment program sewing rooms and a free dining hall yeah. um, and that is so much in this in um, an important aspect of the spirit of um, of that early Pentecostal movement that emerged from the Holiness movement that had a big social justice emphasis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you know it's it's a testimony to her that she doesn't give all this away despite all of her notoriety. I mean, it, it would be very easy to sort of push this off on someone else but she's really involved in all of it even though Mm -hmm. she's got very faithful workers there 
I mean, it's the it's the justice part. It's about, you know, not just feeding the body, but sort of feeding the intellect, too. I mean, she's got a Bible school. Mm-hmm. You've, you know, you've got women who get empowered because they go to Life Bible College. So this is kind of incredible to me that you've, she's got a whole sort of physical plant there at Angela's Temple, which is, you know, feeding people, taking care of babies, doing all this. And then if you're old and, you know, and, and if you're ready to learn something, I'm going to stick you in Bible school. So she's got, you know, she's got something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Is this um, kind of story, is this something that, did you grow up in the Church of God in Christ? No, I didn't, actually. Oh. Here's here's where here's okay. where I get to out myself, Krista. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, okay. here we go. On public I'm going to go ahead and out <laughs> on public radio. Um, I'm actually Catholic. Oh, you are? But, yeah, but I had gone to Pentecostal Church for 10 years mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, and Foursquare Church, actually, Church on the Way in Van Nuys, uh-huh. California. And that's how I learned about Amy. And what struck me about the story in Foursquare was that most people looked at Amy as this person who had been forgotten. Now, she started the denomination or whatever. And then you saw all these men up here every Sunday right. doing the, the Sunday service. But the only person that I felt, you know, really revered her history in the proper way is now is the president of International Foursquare, Jack Hafer. And he to gave this message one evening. This was before I, I started off on my, my quest of um, master's and Ph.D. program. He gave a message one evening about rescuing one of her shoes off the trash heap at Angela's Temple. And he talked about people throwing away their history and throwing away the history of this great woman who started the denomination. Mm-hmm. And it, it got me to thinking about, well, if this got all started by a woman, why can't you see women now? Right. Why don't you see women in, in the pro- more prominent places, not just in Foursquare, but in other churches as well? And that sort of started me out on this quest to try to find out a more about Amy Semple McPherson. Mm-hmm. But then to find out about women in Pentecostalism more broadly, because I could see this sort of backlash <laughs> in a sense. And it is, um, again, we've, you know, we've mentioned that in our culture, even uh, very good journalists tend to conflate these concepts of Pentecostalism, evangelicalism, mm-hmm. fundamentalism. Um, Pentecostals were ordaining women 100 years ago. And, uh, right. and, you know, Episcopalians have done it for 20, 30 years, uh, right. right, way before the most liberal denominations. Um, yeah. And so it's amazing that we're talking about this woman uh, who was a minister in the fullest sense of the word 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Yes. When you started asking that question, I mean, who did you ask and what kind of response did you get? Well, it was funny. Um, you know, I'd ask a couple of people that I knew, and they were like, oh, I don't know, you know. I, I, I Maybe it's just because of history, and that's the way it is now. Maybe a lot of women aren't going to school, but I, I found out the opposite. I found out that, you know, there's tons of women entering in the seminary and women that were at Life Bible College and, and other places and women that I saw in church. And I think, you know, what what happened here, and I think part of it in the story of Pentecostalism, at least, has been this, this story of becoming the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And when you have 100 years ago, Pentecostalism is looked at as this, this aberration, the crazy people who are waiting for Jesus to come. And then you get 20 or 30 years in and people get a little bit more settled and denominations are formed, whether it's Foursquare, Assemblies of God, Church of God and Christ, all all of these denominations. Mm -hmm. They have to decide how much they're going to acquiesce to the the general public viewpoint. And and what I mean by general public viewpoint is general public viewpoint of Scripture or the, you know, or what they think the Holy Spirit has said to them. 
And so, right. For some and so we're back was, at the yeah. fact that she didn't. She when she had to choose between what the Bible might have said about divorce and the calling she felt she was getting, she chose yeah. the calling. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you, you choose you choose the calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, you choose what you think. God, you know, it's sort of like God speaking to me still today. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to choose where where I'm at in my spiritual walk today. So I think for Amy, it was easy enough to say, I'm not going to just be a housewife. Mm-hmm. I have to do this thing. I'm, I'm called to do it. And I think the frustration is for a lot of Pentecostal women today is that they have to find ways to do it if they don't have an avenue to or- ordination. Or if they do have an avenue to licensing and ordination, how do they do it? You know, and it's there's always this this interesting negotiation that goes on with gender relations and Pentecostalism. We'll say some more about that, that interesting I, relationship. Yeah, I think the relationship could become troublesome at times. I mean, a lot of you see in such traditions, you know, you might have the male pastor and his wife is is a better speaker and a minister and preacher than he is. And so how does she, you know, how does how does how does this work out? Well, you know, she's she lets him preach the Sunday morning service and then maybe she does something at the Wednesday night service. And you don't call it preaching, you call it teaching. Okay. Or you're in a tradition, you know, you, you may be in, in Foursquare and you get licensed and you get a church or whatever and, and you're a woman. And you've got to decide, you know, what kind of people am I going to bring alongside me in the congregation? It's, it becomes complicated because it's it's not just the issue of, you know, are you if if you're ordained that you have total freedom? You don't because things always, unfortunately, either get sexualized or polemicized at the end for women who are in ministry. I think that's across the board. Hmm. I, it's it's a lot easier for men in certain kinds of ways, but I think Pentecostal women do a very good job of subverting that. Uh, Other you, times you, yeah, yeah. And you want to ask me what subverting means? No, right? no, no. no <laughs> I'm just going to say you you've written a, a manuscript for a, a book that's going to be published in September, and you you talk about how in the Church of God in Christ, which um, I think is now the largest. Pentecostal yeah. denomination in the Northern mm-hmm. Hemisphere. One of mm-hmm. the original strains that came out of that original Azusa Street Revival. You write that women, uh, <laughs> instead of instead of being ordained, have taken a path of controlling the ordained. <laughs> sometimes exactly. convincingly and sometimes not. What do yeah, you What do you yeah. mean? What do you mean? And that's the uh, subversion well, you're talking about. Yeah, it is uh-huh. a subversion. I mean, I think you can you can either choose two paths. You can either choose that ordination path, or you can choose the path that you know, that Kojic women chose, which was they started a women's department, and the way that that women's department was organized was around church mothers who were older African American, older African American women in the congregation, usually the most spiritual person who knew most everything about everybody in the congregation. And that's how they organized. And that became a very powerful force. I mean, so what you'd have are women in the early days, 1915, 1920s, they're they're preaching on the streets of Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, New York. They preach at the church. They get 15 or 20 people in. They decide who's going to be the pastor. So they write back to Memphis and say, you know, can you send so-and-so? This is the person we think should be the pastor here. So they choose that person. And so once you choose that that man that comes up to pastor, well, of course he's grateful to you, right? Right. Because he's got, you know, he, he's got to do his thing. So historically it looks like this. If you want to talk about it in a contemporary phase, now that there's so many avenues for women in the church, whether it's through the women's auxiliaries of the church or some other means, and they still don't have ordination, by the way, yeah. what what happens is, is that it becomes comes you're you're either married to somebody powerful you're you know you're a a state or or the national supervisor who's Willie Mae Rivers right now and then you can exert some influence they're the people who carry the purse the women have the money 
I mean, and if they hold the money, then, you know, what are you going to do? Um, you know, but what's, what's puzzling about this is that um, in the culture at large, so it, se- it seems like there's been this reverse trend that Pentecostals, mm-hmm. including African-American Pentecostals, started out being much more egalitarian, having this incredible yes. egalitarian impulse about race and gender. Um, and then they have become less egalitarian over time. But here we are in the 21st century. We're in the culture at large. We have a woman running for president. Um, mm-hmm. You know, women are in all kinds of leadership roles. Yeah. And it does look, and I, I don't know if this generalization is fair, but, it, you know, on the surface, it looks like African-American Pentecostal churches are even more restrictive in terms of women's roles than mm, maybe, or, or, or at least, um, you know, that they're restrictive towards women's roles even relative to the to mm-hmm. the whole movement. I don't know. Is that trip fair? It, it looks like it from the outside. Here's yeah. what I'll say about it from from the inside out. From the inside out, the the issue is 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 a little more complicated. I think for a lot of the women themselves, they realize that if I don't have this position, I can control those who do have positions because of the position I have mm-hmm. of of reverence in the church. And I'm not saying that in all cases this works out very well, but um, for for the women. It's a lot of the times it's the women who don't want other women to have power, okay? It's not about it's not about men saying no, no, no. It's about older women saying no to younger women who get more education. Oh, now you're getting into things that none of us women like to talk about, how we yeah, treat each other. Yeah, and it's it's just like the alpha girls and teenagers. I mean, you have alpha women who are 60 and 70 years old, okay? <laughs> and those women do not want a, you know, a 25 or 35-year-old young whippersnapper coming in there telling her what to do. And and when that happens, it's very easy to just sort of throw some roadblocks in, in, in the faces because if you know all the protocol things to do and, and what to say and you know what men want to hear, and, of course, if they want to hear that, you know, they're wonderful and great and I'm not going to usurp you, but we give you some power underneath the table, that makes it a lot more easier. Hmm. So I think it's it's not – it looks like on the outside that, yes, it's backwards, and I would say it's – it's not just that, but it's much more complicated because it's a question of how how the power structure is really working out underneath where those of us who are outsiders to some of these denominational constructs can't see mm-hmm. the, the inner workings of how things are really going. So, yeah, it's it's difficult. It's very difficult. And I think it's especially, you know, at least in the context of Church of God in Christ, um, I think the biggest challenge they will have in the future, especially for the women's department, is how to keep younger women. I mean, younger right, women right. have choices. They're growing and they up can with go away and do some other things. Right. Yeah. And you know, I'm I'm just curious if you if you feel that that if you know not just in Amy Semple McPherson, but when I look at, um, I also find Jenny Evans Moore Seymour, who was married to William mm-hmm. Seymour, the founder of the Pentecostal movement, one of the founders. Um, and a and a black evangelist Emma Cotton, who yes, Amy yes. Semple McPherson encouraged to establish something uh, the Crouch mm-hmm. Temple that became a really important uh, place in the Church of God in Christ. Are these women? What what's their legacy? Um, do do new generations know about them? Well, you know, the sad part is new generations don't know very much. I mean, I think if you ask the average young Pentecostal woman who might be you know, going after education right now, if she even knew the name Amy Semple McPherson, let alone any of the other names you said, they'd probably say no. 
Mm-hmm. And and this is partially the problem because I think they don't have the kinds of role models that they see now. If you think about the contemporary scene in Pentecostalism, what do you see? You see people like Juanita Bynum. You see Paula White. You see televangelists okay. who have these great ministries and they have a certain way of positioning themselves. And, and it makes it very difficult for them to see a grassroots everyday person unless they're looking in their home church. But they might not like what they see in their home church because mm-hmm. that woman is just a little bit older and she's not doing all the things that you want to do. So it yeah it makes I think it's very difficult that this not knowing this past history makes it very difficult for younger Pentecostal women of today to decide to first of all stay within the tradition and then secondarily to know that there's a place that they can carve out for themselves despite some of the constrictions they may be feeling from both male and female leadership alike. You know, I'm curious some um Amy Semple McPherson has been rediscovered by a whole new a generation of scholars, and um, there, there are just a number of biographies of her, and there mm-hmm. was a PBS program on her. But some of those seem to want to draw a line between her and televangelism, right? Or yeah, you know, she yeah. was a controversial figure. They said she's like Jimmy Swaggart, um, or she was uh, the predecessor to today's megachurches, or she was. Um, a prime example of the mingling of politics with religion that has come full flower in our our culture. What do you think of these analyses from from the vantage point you have on all this? I think all of that is partially true. What I think gets missed on all of this is, is simply the fact that she's a woman doing this at a time when not very many men or women are thinking this way. I mean, that's just the beauty Thinking of this it, way, what do you mean? Just th- Thinking in the way of how do I make ev- everything work together? Hmm. So I've got a church, but not only do I have a church, I've got a radio station. Not only do I have this radio station, but I'm feeding everybody in Los Angeles. Not only do I do that, <laughs> but I travel around the world and I do all this. I mean, they don't think about this as being all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is the difference. I think you know people like to look at Amy piecemeal because it's easier to look at her piecemeal. But to think about somebody who had, like, a vision for all of this, Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it puts her in a different kind of category altogether. Because it's somebody who thinks about, how many ways can I get this message out that's possible? And maybe maybe that's a little bit, you know, televangelist. But televangelist can be very much one-sided. You do not see very many televangelists today figuring out how they're going to feed the poor. Right. And also, you know, uh, know, it's interesting that she died, although she built this large building, she fed all these people. She didn't die rich. She didn't have much of a personal estate. There was none of this was enriching her, which to me seems like a really important factual distinction. Yeah, it is because she's not looking for her personal Learjet. You Mm -hmm. know, I I can't even begin to tell you the the wealth that some of these televangelists have now. And it's all tax free, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very it's very easy to do. But this is not a woman who put a lot of money in that. Granted, she had a, a home and out in Lake Elsinore that was very nice, of some sort of like vacation house and her own parsonage. But there's, I mean, there was not a lot of money left in her personal pockets mm-hmm. at the time of her death. And so you can see that there's a different sort of impetus for us, for her at least. And for those that I see now, I see it as being a way to sort of make yourself into a media celebrity. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the, the biggest thing about Amy is, is that who could, 
how could she have thought all of this would turn out the way that it did? I mean, it was sort of like, I have a good idea. I'm going to run with it. Right. And, you you know, mean and, starting and, and sh- a denomination that has 5 million people now? And Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you start something and you don't, you, you know, you sort of have an inkling. You 147 know, and countries. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. you sort of think, I, I, you know, I'm going to do this for God. Okay. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put it in Pentecostal language. I'm doing this for the Lord. And and it turns out, and it's great, but Amy would have never voiced this. This means I'm great. Mm-hmm. She would have said, it means that, you know, God worked this thing out. Look how wonderful it turned out. Right. You know, this mm-hmm. this is the way that she would sort of spin the whole thing. But the reality is, is that, you know, she she had some good material to work with. I mean, she's just very bright. I mean, and I think the other thing, too, is you, you brought this whole thing up is that people sort of try to link her. I think the, the other piece of the value of her story is that, you know, she's around at the same time Billy Sunday is. But we forget <laughs> about her in, in American religious history. We right. talk about Billy Sunday right. and how powerful of a speaker he is. But she's powerful in her own, dif- in a very different kind of way. And That's, so Billy yeah. Sunday's interesting, but I mean, he's not as interesting as Amy. Amy is a whole, is a whole package before you get a whole package. You know, really. I had, I was amazed to find this quote from Anthony Quinn, the actor who again was Mexican American and he met her as a teenager and she fed his people he knew during the depression. And he said she was the most magnetic personality he had ever yeah. encountered that Ingrid Bergman, Greta Garbo and Catherine Hepburn all fell short of that first electric shock. Amy Semple McC- Pearson produced in him. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And it, and it says something about her ability to have a stage presence. Remember, this is not, you know, this is not someone who had, who was practiced in public speaking or anything. Right. I mean, this this happens after years and years of sort of holding yourself out on the road. So the, the fact that she could come up with the ways in which to sort of position herself and know what to do in, in this particular moment that she finds herself, right, you know, we, we always sort of think about, we could hear her speak, this is really great, but I mean, just think, this is, you know, we're starting to get into the age of the talking movie. And then mm-hmm. when we move move forward she's a different kind of media figure altogether I'm, I'm almost sorry I'm very sorry she passed away when she did because I thought I wonder what she would look like on TV <laughs> but you know there so, you go but right but this whole this glamorous quality of her this stage presence um, also is part uh, perhaps of the attention she got and and there there was this bizarre incident, which is always <laughs> told when people tell her story. They may forget yeah. her feeding the hungry during the Depression. But, and it, you They'll know, it's fascinating. She disappeared. She was on Venice Beach. Um, she's found a month later in Mexico. She has this story that doesn't seem to add up about being kidnapped. There are all kinds of explanations of what may really have been going on, including she may have been having an affair with somebody who worked in her radio station. Yeah. Um, she had a nervous breakdown a few years later. She had these failed marriages. And some people would say, this proves that this was not a woman of God, um, <laughs> but just a flawed human being with a big ego um, who liked to be on stage. I mean, I think some people would hold the whole Pentecostal uh, enterprise in suspicion, um, seeing this yeah. and seeing her as a representative of it. If you're narrow-minded, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah, and I know this, I knew. But I think you know, what's more interesting to me is that she managed to not mess it up as much as she could have. Hmm. And what I mean by that is this. I mean, if you think about the fact that, 
you've done all of this work and you're constantly traveling and you're taking care of two little kids and you got a and you've got you know your your mother's kind of always there sort of nagging at you all the time even though you've done all this stuff and you know everybody wants to feel a little bit of personal love and attention it's not enough to have a crowd of 5000 in front of your face all the time they don't go home and tuck you in at night they're not sleeping with you and I would imagine that this place of prominence that she had was it was a very lonely place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can read the story of her disappearance and, you know, whether or not she's with the radio operator and all this. You can read that as, oh, this is salacious, it's terrible, all of this. Or you could read it as, this is somebody who hadn't had a break in how long? And, okay. and, 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 you know. And is it theatrical personality? Yeah, and 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 is a little. I mean, let's face it; she's high strung. I mean, there's a part in um, one of the biographies of her where um, the pers- the author Matthew Sutton talks about the fact that she actually hit Harold McPherson when she wanted to to leave and and go out and preach. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. not somebody who's feeling a little housewifey. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, if you've got this very strong personality, you have some very strong needs and. The thing that people always, I mean, they always think about Pentecostals is, you know, they always fall off the wagon and they go and they do some sexual sin. And I I put it in quotation marks. But I think when you're dealing with a religion that is so, you know, focused in on on body, how can you ignore everything about your body? You know, this is what this is. This is the dichotomy is that you, you worship, you feel the Holy Spirit through your body and all this stuff and everything else they tell you you're supposed to cut off. Well, it just doesn't get cut off like mm-hmm. a light switch. And I think we have to see her as, a you know, a flesh and blood person. Mm-hmm. And she, um, you know, there's some there's some sadness when you kind of when you read her yeah. story and you and as you've been describing, you see all she accomplished. You see how uneven it was. You see how mm-hmm. she collapsed occasionally. And it's quite easy to understand how that could have happened when you when yeah. you look at it. She dies of what looks like an accidental overdose, although mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that her funeral was still one of the largest funerals ever to be held in Los Angeles. So many people yeah. were there. But there's you have a real sense of sadness when you, um, you know, her relationships became estranged, her daughter yeah. left. How do you kind of, and, you know, is all of that an indictment of what she was to stand for, salvation? And this, you know, this the gospel truth and this spiritual um, vitality. How do you think yeah, about that? I I think it's an indictment against the rigor of religion. <laughs> actually, huh. to be quite honest, and and I'll put, and I mean it by this: what what becomes the issue is how much are you supposed to give up of yourself to live for God? I mean, this is always the the big question, and. You know, you know, there's all these great songs about I surrender all, put your all yeah. on the altar, yeah. all these sorts of things. And and people people saying these things, they really mean them. But nobody ever bothers to think of a life like Amy's. And, you know, Amy just decided to go headlong into all of this. And, you know, there is a point in which you have to count the cost of what it's going to do. And, you know, do you pull back when your family starts to fall apart or your daughter doesn't like you anymore? Mm-hmm. Do you pull back when your mother turns against you? Do you pull back from it when, you know, you've had this accusation against you that you really ran off of the radio operator? Do you, do you pull back? And I think someone like Amy says, no, I don't I don't pull back from it. But at the same time, and not pulling back, you pay you pay a personal price. And I also think that, too, we you know, 
Protestants don't have saints, you know. Don't have saints, but yeah. They don't have saints, but they mm-hmm. like to make saints, even though they don't want to make saints. And, and what, by that I mean this. It's, it's always, you know, there will always be said that the leaders should be held to a higher standard. But the fact of the matter is, is that the leaders have more opportunity to fall hmm. because there's more, there's more opportunity there. And I think part of what happens is that the people who are usually the very closest to these people see them as being almost these demigod figures, and they don't see them as being human beings. Mm-hmm. And so the, the frailties of the, you know, the Jimmy Swaggarts or the Jim Bakers or the Amy Supple McPhersons, I mean, you could just make a list a, a thousand miles long. Mm-hmm. But I think, it to me, those stories speak more to this, this Pentecostal experience is a very powerful experience. But it doesn't. It it ties into the human experience. Everybody fails, and you know the question about the Pentecostal experience is that is there redemption after the failure? Hmm. And I think I think that there is. I think you know Amy tried to work towards that. Unfortunately, up to now, history has not been very kind to her. I mean, I think in the last ten to fifteen years, it's been a lot kinder to her. But you know, I wonder. You know, will Jimmy Swaggart or the Jim Bakers have the same story? Mm-hmm. And I think that their story won't turn out the same way, in part because of the ways in which their their ministries were constructed. So I think, you know, unfortunately, they're going to be more remembered for the the transgressions more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think Amy can be rehabilitated because there's a corpus of material there that shows something else entirely. Right, and that holistic ministry that you described. That yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is great. I think, I think we've, I think we've really covered. Do we hit everything of, you wanted? I to? think so. Um, yeah. I did have a question that what was it. I had a question that came to mind. Um, let me think about it for a minute. Oh, I know. You write a lot about belief in sanctification. Yeah. You, I'm, and I was, and that was echoing for me as you were talking mm-hmm. about her and about the fact that that powerful people are still human beings. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if that's kind of attention sanctification which is, which is this desire this this uh aspiration to be perfect, to become perfect, holy, yeah, perfect, yeah. which is in the holiness tradition and and was inherited by Pentecostals. Um mm-hmm. that really stands in tension with with what it means to be human as well, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of a spiritual tension that's set up in these traditions. Yeah, it is. It it really is very strongly because, I mean, you you think about, you know, you need to abstain from from smoking or drinking and you should dress a certain way. You you need to. I mean, you know, early Pentecostals, they're not going to movies. They're not swimming. They're not playing sports. They're not doing anything. And all this was all built into what holiness meant. So you're already, you know, on the outskirts of what everyone else is doing. Or if you're a youngster going to school, you can't even chew gum because that didn't that meant you weren't holy. Mm -hmm. And I think this this sets up attention between you're constantly you know you either go one or two ways you decide that I can live this life and God's going to help me to live it or you know I can live this life but there's these moments in which I'm going to fail and nobody goes into this thinking that they're going to fail but that's you know that's what's great about the Pentecost altar call you can always go up and repent I think where this gets into trouble in the tradition is that you have some Pentecostals who believe that you know not only can you lose your sanctification, you can lose your salvation. Mm-hmm. So it's always this this fear that's like the sword hanging over your head that if I mess up, I can never come back. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've got great stories. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Jerry Lee Lewis, who walks out of the Pentecostal church and says, never again. 
I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and he, he just can't, he can't. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's big reasons why it's just the sanctified life is a hard thing to live. So, I, I mean, I guess I just want to ask a personal question as we end. Sure. Um, how you have worshiped in a, f- okay, sorry, there's some sound. Yeah. Yeah, the sound from Hold outside. On. Hang on a second. I know what you're going to ask me. I worship in a Pentecostal church and. Well, <laughs> okay, let, let's wait until then. Um, yeah, I'm going to wait until she comes. Is, yeah, she's about to tell him off. That out. Okay. <laughs> okay, they've been strongly rebuked. No. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. She's gone. Do you need her to be here to do it? No. I think, I think, well, can you hear she will else? come back. And we yeah, need. I guess we need to wait until she comes back because the door yeah, will close. Yeah, she's going to close. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're going to close it. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, Thank you. Go. Okay. okay. Um. So I'm not going to call you a member of the Church of God in Christ, but you've worshipped. Nah. You've worshipped in a Foursquare Church. Uh, you've been a Church of God Christ. You've been a scholar yeah. of. Um, yeah. You're an African American Christian woman in the 21st century. You've been a scholar of the Church of God in Christ. I mean, how? What does Amy Semple McPherson mean to you? What does she teach you? Does she give you hope? Is she an example? You know, I'll tell you a story, and okay. this is a story I've not told anybody else, but I think this is a good place to tell the story. When I um, was leaving seminary to go to do my Ph.D. work, here's what Amy means to me. I actually took a little trip up to her grave site at um, Forest Lawn in Glendale, California. Mm. And I kind of went up there, and it's it's very stark. You know, it's, it's a mausoleum, and they've got two angels on the side. It's up on a hill, actually. And one of the interesting things is is that what you don't know unless you know some of the history is that down below her on the hill are lots of people who were members of Angela's Temple. <sighs> they bought plots there so they could be close to Amy even in death. Huh. And I, I went up and I sat there for a while and I thought, you know, if I could be as half as interesting as you, if I could be as half as eloquent as you, and I could manage to maybe not have as much trouble as you did, this all might be very interesting for me and fun. And and what I mean to say by that is this. I mean, I think what she means to me is it, it's, it is example of a woman who went full out at this whole thing and, and didn't allow what people said or how people felt about her to stand her way. I mean, even at the worst moment of her life, which I think is basically, you know, being indicted up on the charges for, um, for the kidnapping, Mm -hmm. she continues to move forward. I mean, it had to be an incredibly difficult thing to do that. And for me, that shows a lot of fortitude. I think we've got a lot of people who, you know, when you, when you break down, you, you know, you sort of just sort of whine about it in the press or whatever, but you don't (laughs) see her whining. And that's what I like about her the most. She's not a whiner. She's a doer. And for me, even though it's all very hard and she collapses and all these other things that happen to her, I think I see the sense in which you can you can try to do it all. But at the same time, you just need to realize that there's a cost for doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think she really is, is a grand example of you know, sort of controverting the, the gender norms and the norms of the day about what, what it is you're supposed to do. I mean, it, it, as someone who did this in coming out of Foursquare and going back into the Catholic Church, I mean, one of the things that was really very difficult was hear people and a, and a woman that I respected in Foursquare say to me, you know, don't go to that seminary and become a feminist. And I thought, <laughs> 
well, I, you know, I need to become a feminist because you're somebody who doesn't have a secretary and all the rest of the male pastors on the staff have a secretary Mm -hmm. and you don't have one. And so whatever that means, I need to become that. Well, plus she's, and, that tradition yeah. is dis- descended from a feminist. Yeah, uh, I know. And this say. is, this is the whole point. Argue. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think for, you know, the example Amy shows to me is that, you know, you can be, you know, a woman and keep who you are and, you know, and do the mother thing, do all this stuff, but also not set limits upon who you can be. And I think that, for me, becomes a very important message when when we see a lot of compromise, especially with women who are in ministry today. I mean, there's lots of compromises that have to be made. But, you know, Amy is a person that just decided this is the way it was going to be. And this is what called me. God called me to do. And I'm going to do it. Is she how does she um, what does she mean for you as a as now as a Catholic woman? You know, it's really interesting because I always get this thing about, you know, well, Catholics don't ordain women. Right. Um, <laughs> from one what, church what, to, the, to another this, church. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And, and it's the church of my birth, you know, it's where my baptism okay. was. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm back kicking and screaming, but that's for another show. Okay. Um, it, it's interesting to me because I still see her. I mean, she reminds me of lots of Catholic women. I mean, if you think about, you know, some a lot of the nuns like Catherine Drexel and others, I mean, you go out and you build stuff. You make things happen. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me that she's in the Pentecostal tradition or whatever tradition she would have been in. I think just this fact that women women in religious traditions broadly have to fight against so much to, to get through. And we have many women in the Catholic tradition who are this in the same boat of we're trying to help get this message out. And how do we how do we do it? So for me, looking at her from the other side, from a very liturgical high church tradition, I don't have a problem with Amy because I see her as being someone who was a worker in the field. But, you know, it, it, at the same time, she's not afraid to get her hands dirty. Right. And I think for, you know, there's so, it, like I said, there's just so many Catholic women who have the same story, too. It's just that I can see the myriad ways in which, the tr- which you know, the Catholic Church has tried to squelch their story, too. So there's all these stories that we have to tell of, of women across the religious traditions, Christian or otherwise, that, you know, women have had held a very strong place in in religion and in history. But we just, you know, we're still at a loss to figure out how to retrieve these voices. Hmm. All right. That's great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> now that I've totally outed myself all over your radio station, <laughs> and people across the country will be calling, we didn't know you were a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll... well, you know, I just decided that, at, you know, at this age, I don't even care anymore. And, you know, that's a whole nother show. You need, you know what you need to do sometime? You need to do the conversion store uh, show, right. Krista. Well, I'm really serious. I know. Well, there's so, there's so many there's interesting so many permutations yeah. of that these days. Like, yeah. I know. Yeah, it's hard to do. I but think no, we really, could just, I enjoyed We this. could only... We could do a show every week with some different variation of conversion. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And for me, it was, you know, here's the sidebar. For me, it was Foursquare. When I went off to, to Fuller Seminary, they gave this guy $300 a month to go to seminary because he was married. They gave me nothing. Hmm. When we did the story for PBS, the first my vindication was Jack Hafer calling my house and saying how proud he was of me. And I'm like, well, you know, you should have said that 10 years ago. You might have still had me. <laughs> But I'm it's happy. too, it's too you, late now. <laughs> it's too late now. But it's okay. But it's okay. I, I, I love him anyway. But, you know, it's just funny to me. Yeah. It's like they don't know what to do until you do something, and then they're all happy about you. Yeah. 
Well, you were really good in that, and so I'm. But of course, you were better with me because we, I asked you the right questions, right? That's right. You asked, <laughs> and of course, and I know you. I don't want to get to know you better. <laughs> and so, the next time you're out in LA or someplace near me, I would love to see you because you know you? I really do enjoy the show. Oh, I'm thank up you. University, yeah, I'm you're in Rochester, right? Aren't we yeah. on some weird time in Rochester? Like early, early uh, yes, in the morning. Yes, it's a very real time. You know, I draw it down from the web. I don't oh, okay, even. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't even try to listen to the show I because think it, it comes on six a.m. or something. Yeah, it comes on really early yeah. in the morning so i just i just pull the podcast great. down because you know i use it in class sometimes too oh, i need to let you know that so there, there's all these uses that. yeah no this is great because i mean it's really good for me to just take students and say if you want to hear you know let's talk i can't talk a lot about this in class but here let's go to hmm. speaking of faith hmm. and go look up this and i send them the link love and that. it's great for them so i just want you to know they oh, really do that. enjoy well it. yeah we'll we'll be in touch and i'm just so yeah. glad i knew i i knew i wanted to have you on the show i've known that for a while and i'm glad we finally made it happen yeah no i'm happy to do it for you you know i am well, we'll be in touch about what's going to happen, and there may be some more questions that we'll shoot you by email or something. Sure, no okay. problem. All right. Anything you need. Thanks okay. a lot. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.